0: Support for the Fallon Forum is provided by The Fighting Burrito, located at 117 Welch Avenue in Ames, Iowa. The Fighting Burrito offers a varied
1: menu with vegetarian options as well as the option to build your own burrito. More information can be found at www.fightingburrito.com. That's www.fightingburrito.com. Support provided by Gateway Market. Gateway Market offers a unique selection of local, organic, and eco-friendly items. Get more information at gatewaymarket.com. Underwriting provided by Hawk Restaurant, located at East 5th and Walnut. Hawk is open for lunch and supper Monday through Saturday. More information can be found at hawktable.com. That's hoqtable.com. Both the shoes with some all right, so switching gears from some uh, great uh, Latin music to uh, some provocative talk in English. Welcome to the Fallon Forum. This is Ed Fallon, your host here, welcoming you to the program today. Obviously, we're going to talk a lot about the uh, March for Our Lives. We've got a bunch of other stuff on the docket as well. But All right, so this is a big weekend, folks. Uh, marches all across the country with a half a million people showing up in Washington, D.C. And what is most important and probably most unique about this movement is that it is led by young people, the young people who have been on the front lines of the worst, uh, most recent gun violence. And, uh, you know, there are those saying, well, it's a flash in the pan, they ain't going to go anywhere. Uh, But there are those who are citing historical precedent, and also historical knowledge, uh, stuff we can learn from how movements progressed in the past. And I'm uh, delighted to welcome uh, John Tinker to the program. Uh, You might recognize the name, uh, Tinker versus the Des Moines Public Schools, a a lawsuit that uh, went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court back in the 1960s and 70s uh, that um, won uh, a significant um, case that... uh, that made it clear that students have a right to express their political views uh, through the clothing they choose to wear. John, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Ed. Great to be here. Yeah, so um, you've been tracking the, uh, the march, I believe, because they've been tracking you. <laughs> uh-huh.
2: Yeah, it's really wonderful to see so many kids uh, so energized uh, and feeling like they can affect the, the world that they live in. Uh, they've, they've got a real issue here with the violence, uh, the gun violence in the schools. And uh, more power to them. I think it's just great that, they, uh, that they're taking up the uh, task and getting the publicity and learning how to organize.
1: Yeah, I've been very impressed with the uh, material I've been seeing online as well. Uh, and not just with the material, but with the uh, content. I mean, the... Uh the, when I say material, I mean the, the the technical side of it. They they're they're really effective at um, at making sure you uh, sign up for for information that you are encouraged to share that information on Facebook and Twitter and elsewhere. Uh, and yet the um, you know besides that, they're really expressing uh, they're really expressing the concern that a lot of us have in ways that uh, are, are extremely powerful. And I think I mean, I'm going to I'm saying it's it's more effective than not to disparage the efforts that have come before us, but for some reason, you know, this is connecting with people in a way that a lot of previous movements to do something about gun violence haven't. And mm-hmm. maybe um, maybe that's a question I throw to you as well, John. What, why do you think that is? Why is this movement seem to be more powerful and more likely to accomplish change? Well,
2: I think that the the kids today are pretty interconnected uh, with each other, and they're, they're kind of a generation that are in touch with each other. And so um, a lot of their communications are not mediated by the press and so on, like it
1: was when we were kids. Yeah, yeah. so in order to get our message out (laughs) years ago, I mean, uh, here we are adapting. uh, (laughs) But uh, years ago, we'd have to write a press release, uh, often hand-deliver it to the newspaper or the TV station, radio station, and hope they might pick it up. Uh, Mm -hmm. Here you go straight to your friends immediately – uh, you're not just friends, but fellow travelers; uh, those who are of yep. like mind, not a concern. And boom, you get uh, you get some immediate traction, some immediate response.
2: Yep, and watch out, world, because here they come, and uh, it's going to really change the dynamic politically. I believe to, to have this organizational level of the, uh, the up and coming generation, yeah. and the sense of empowerment that they're getting out of this. They really.
1: Yeah. And I notice some of the mainstream media is covering uh, examples of why marches like this fail. <laughs> but uh, I, I think I'm not sure why why they feel the need to do that. It feels very disparaging and very um, uh, negative when you look at the number of um, movements and again it's never just about a march a march is just one component of a movement but a number of the number of movements in which a march was important that were were very successful and i'm thinking of the suffragette movement i'm thinking of the um, the, uh, the the, the uh, march on uh, what was it um, the non blanking on the name uh, the civil rights march that uh, that led to the voting rights act and the civil rights mm-hmm. act mm-hmm. you know those were very powerful and very effective and yes, uh, indeed.
2: block there, but it's very empowering to, to the people who participate in these marches to know that they're not alone.
1: Yeah. And that they really do have some numbers on their side. And that matters so much. I mean, it isn't just about numbers, but gosh, numbers certainly matter.
2: Morale is a really big factor in any movement. Can, can Do the people really believe that their energy is going to go to a, a useful purpose when it's all said and done? And even if a march doesn't bring uh, you know the, the the change that is wanted. It's a, definitely a part of a movement. A movement is not just a single
1: event; it's right. a whole
2: raising of awareness
1: and so on. But and we're saying, I think the the best indication that this movement is finally catching fire and finally getting to the the point where it's irresistible to the forces of resistance, uh, namely the you know the NRA and its wholly owned subsidiary known as the U.S. Congress. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, you're, you're seeing, you're seeing the, uh, the advocates of no gun control starting to uh, modify their stance. Uh, I, mean, ma- right. I mean, maybe in ways that aren't all that significant, but the fact that they're, they're actually beginning to concede that there might be some good points on our side. It's not just that there are two sides
2: to this issue. There, right. there are many, many good
1: point. Uh,
2: uh, opinions in between, and there are many gun owners, I'm very confident, that uh, would be happy to see a limit, say, on the magazine size or on the uh, the assault weapon type of a gun. Um, I mean, other people are not going to be happy uh, with that. I think it's really important that we, as a society, have that discussion and and try to enter into that discussion with respect for each other and, and not uh, not drive immediately to a polarizing point if we can avoid it. I think. For instance, in Australia, they had a massacre at, uh, in Tasmania.
1: Right. Port,
2: Port Arthur uh, <clears throat> Massacre. And some 30 people were shot by a guy with an automatic weapon like this, an assault rifle. Right. And uh, they uh, believe they uh, they for, uh, forbid all uh, auto-loading weapons at that point, all, all uh, what we'd call a semi-automatic. and. Uh, and it's been pretty successful, and right. no mass murders since.
1: Yeah, that that should say volumes, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, back to the the fact that this is a movement being led by young people, uh, I, I like that they are also paying attention to history and to paying attention to, you know, what you and your sister and others uh, back, others who were active, active back during the Vietnam War, during the Civil Rights Movement, what you guys were able to accomplish, uh, you know, through protest, but then also through the courts and eventually through political reform. Uh, you know, I think the fact that they're paying attention to that really matters. When I was down in Parkland, Florida, um, you know, I heard uh, that, that, that I was at the uh, the press conference the teachers held when they first came back to school. And the, um, the uh, you know, that was your, your case was one, one of the uh, precedents that was mentioned. So... I think it's, it's encouraging to me that not only is this new energy, but it's new energy that's learning from past failures and past successes. Um, and I don't know whether, John, you caught, this, um, caught the, some of the speeches from Washington, D.C. Uh, on Saturday, but there's a clip I want to play for us. Uh, it's uh, Naomi Wadler. She's an 11-year-old uh, student uh, at a school in Alexandria, Virginia. And I, I just think she – the whole speech is great, but I think this line in particular really nails it.
3: My friends and I might still be 11 and we might still be in elementary school, but we know we know life isn't equal for everyone and we know what is right and wrong.
1: We also know that we stand in the shadow of the Capitol and we know that we have seven short years until we, too,
3: have the right to vote.
1: Yeah, and I think that was a big theme of the uh, of the movement was this is going to come down to political reform. uh, Well, that's
2: right. And that's why a lot of the conservative uh, Republicans are listening because uh, uh, their constituencies. I mean, some. I I live in a rural area and a very Second Amendment type of area, I would say. But um, a lot of uh, conservative Republicans are representing districts that are also very afraid of gun violence. Mm. And and that's an issue that's going to come. Visit
1: these Republicans. They need to pay attention to this. Yeah, and I—I I mean, Naomi is talking about uh, her generation, you know, the you know elementary school students being being able to vote in seven years, and I, you know, I, I think there's a lot of a lot of the a lot of our eyes are focused on this fall, and uh, with the anticipation that that uh, this movement and uh, other concurrent movements on other important issues are likely to generate a sea change. St- at the state level at the federal level uh, as soon as uh, this coming November
2: yeah it could well there are many issues uh, many irons are in the fire <laughs> lots of lots of things going on right now uh, it's it's not just the gun violence uh, as you know um, and I think a lot of these issues uh, uh, a lot of them are important and and the the violence issue generally in with regard to foreign affairs, is uh, is very important, especially with uh, John Bolton coming in as Secretary of State, a right. very hawkish uh, guy with very uh, hawkish rhetoric. Yeah. I heard on the, on the news, uh, NPR, this morning. Uh,
1: That's a very good point, John. Yeah. Hey, so uh, back to uh, your your own um, protest back and was it 1969?
2: Uh, we we actually wore our armbands in 1965.
1: 65. Yes, that's that's one. right.
2: Okay. We okay. won our case in 69.
1: Uh, oh, that, okay. Supreme right. Court. And again, the uh, the motivation was to call attention to the the Vietnam War through the wearing yeah. of a black armband around your uh, your, your, your 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 coat, and. Um, and that was met with a pushback from the authorities, uh, I mean, all the way to the Supreme Court. The Des Moines School Board, you were expelled. A, you know, the, the district court upheld the decision of the, of the uh, school board. It wasn't until you got to the Supreme Court that you were able to achieve justice. Uh, it seems to me that, that school officials have become more um, not just tolerant but appreciative of student-led uh, political commentary, whether it's on yeah. this issue or something else
2: spectrum of administration response to uh, protesting students and uh, some some areas do not have uh, administrators that are quite so understanding.
1: And this is at a time where there are so many challenges within public education from so many different directions. So, uh, you know, I, I'm i encouraged. You're right. And you're right. It's not universal that all school administrators and principals and teachers get it, that they that, that they, they all don't understand the value of having that student voice rising and growing in power. But I think a, a lot do, and that's encouraging. And I I wonder if John and Mary Beth Tinker and Steve Eckhart, if they'd worn black armbands to school uh, today, how you would have been – treated, how the, what the response would have been. I think it would have been different myself.
2: Well, uh, um, one of the main differences actually occurred 50 years ago with our case. And so right. the administrators yes. are used to the idea, and those that um, don't quite get it yet, um, often it just takes a reminder, a little call from
1: the right. American Civil Liberties Union, and, <laughs> or something like right, that, right. and they get it straight. Yeah well John uh, thanks so much for joining us so folks we've been talking with John Tinker the uh that that the uh, that's one of the two tinkers in the uh, Des Moines My versus pleasure, man. Yeah the Tinker versus the Des Moines Public Schools uh, case from 1969 uh that is still being cited today in the uh, student movement that has uh brought the issue of gun violence to a new level of interest and uh, prominence so again thank you John for your continued ability to and willingness to speak out and again thanks to all the uh, folks who organized incredible actions all across the state this past weekend, keep at it, stay strong. We'll talk more about it later in the program. We're going to switch gears and we're going to talk about um, we're going to talk about regenerative agriculture. We're going to talk about why the office of secretary of state is important here on the Fallon Forum, broadcasting live from La Reina, twelve sixty a.m. and ninety six point five FM in Des Moines, Iowa, the cultural and culinary crossroads of America, and also the um, The uh, southern edge of the uh, polar vortex and its uh, spring manifestation, which is really horrible. We are so sick of winter here, are we not? Yes, Maddie is shaking her head. She is sick of winter. Anyway, uh, we got to deal with it. (laughs) All right, so later in the program, we're going to be talking about why the Secretary of State's office is so important. We're going to be talking with somebody who wants the job of managing that office. But first, we're going to switch gears and go to our phone line and welcome Ken Rosenborough to the program. Uh, Ken, hello. How are you?
0: Good, Ed. Happy so, to be on your show. Good.
1: Well, so um, there's more and more conversation about uh, the importance of sustainable agriculture, organic farming, regenerative agriculture. There's lots of different names to describe it, and um, there are more and more uh, developments and and uh, you know twists and turns to that uh, that movement every day. It seems.
0: Yeah, there is. Um, uh, you mentioned regenerative agriculture. That, that is uh, a major trend right now um, because it focuses on soil health and the importance of soil health, um, regenerative agri- ag practices, which include cover crops, diverse crop rotations, minimal use of chemical fertilizers. Um, these practices aim to re- restore topsoil. And mainly, one of their main benefits of this um, system of agriculture is sequestering carbon in the soil right. to mitigate climate change.
1: And that's, that, okay. that, I mean, that's that's increasingly important because it's obvious that we're not going to prevent climate change. I mean, we could prevent it from getting much, much worse if we, if we as quickly as possible, transition off of fossil fuels. But if... If we did that today, completely, we'd still be in for a world of hurt. And so mitigation is important. And, um, you know, that's I guess that that's something that does not get enough conversation. What do you see as the potential um, sequestration benefit of of um, agriculture that truly tries to make sure that uh, we're maximizing the possibility, the the capacity of soil to sequester carbon?
0: Well, in, in speaking to people who are working on this in this area, because I'm a um, journalist, I editor of the Organic and Non-GMO report, um, speaking with experts such as um, Tom Newmark of the Carbon Underground, they're very optimistic that if, that if regenerative ag practices are adopted um, globally, they see it as, as the main, um, main solution. To, to mitigating climate change right? Um, to keep that carbon in the soil
1: um, and, and let me ask you this Ken why does a field of organically raised soybeans uh, perform any better at sequestering carbon than say a field of genetically modified soybeans
0: well um, there's, there's no use of chemical pesticides and fertilizers um, conventional agriculture um, there's more well there is use of tillage and plowing actually there is some in organic as well so um plowing is um is really a um uh can be very damaging in terms of climate change because it can release carbon into the atmosphere so So, i know at um, iowa state university there's research being done on um on no-till organic they're using roller crimpers to um with cover crops to um, To prevent prevent um, plowing or tillage, reduce tillage.
1: Now, Ken, your conventional farmer raising a GMO crops, no-till. I mean, that's happening. Would they would they would argue that they've they've got an advantage there because they're not they're not tilling the soil, and of course, coming along with that, of course, is a heavy application of Roundup or a, a, other other right. other chemicals. And um, but they are they aren't tilling the soil in some cases, so. Does that mitigate the, uh, the, the chemical application that might be problematic for other reasons? Um,
0: yeah, I'm not sure if it mitigates the chemical applications. Um, you know, there's a lot of Roundup being used. More than 300 million pounds are being used every year. Weeds are becoming resistant to it, so farmers are having to use other herbicides. Monsanto has introduced, dicamba-resistant, hmm. GMO crops, soybeans. So it's kind of a GMO pesticide treadmill. So organic farmers, by not using those, uh, those chemicals, are, are doing more to mitigate climate change. In the organic soils, there's been studies done that have shown that organically um, uh, produced soils actually sequester carbon, more carbon, and for longer periods. Uh, than conventional
1: soils do yeah. so and we're seeing we're seeing quite a, generally speaking with with sustainable agriculture we're seeing a, a big pushback we're seeing more and more uh, big corporate entities getting involved in the sale uh, of uh, of of organic products and we're seeing um, more attempts uh, by policymakers to you know to to kind of make sure the playing field can, remains tilted in favor of the of the big commodity crops you know so yeah that, yeah, that, that probably says volumes right there that there's something powerful and important and timely about the movement
0: right yeah there is i mean the, the subsidies uh... the government subsidies uh... favor by far the big the big commodity producers um, so, But more, is, more and more is being done uh, with, with these regenerative ag practices. And actually, bigger companies, such as General Mills and Dannon, are focusing on regenerative agriculture, which, which I think is a good trend. Um, for example, General Mills just purchased 34,000 acres of land in South Dakota that they're going to convert to organic, and it's going to be focused on soil health on regenerative practices.
1: Yeah. And now we have McDonald's also are also promising, pledging that it's going to slash its greenhouse gas emissions by 36%. 36% by 2030. Um, then they plus they also want to cut uh, by 31% their metric ton of food and packaging. You know, you've you've got you've got big companies now starting to uh, weigh in on this. And that's a uh, you know that you know, when, the, when the mom and, if the mom-and-pop producer or restaurant can't get the attention of its member of Congress, perhaps McDonald's can. Yeah. <laughs> as, sad yeah as, well, as sad as that is.
0: Yeah. Well, I think it's a good – I think these are good steps. Uh, that's my perspective. When companies like General Mills and, and Dannon is another company, they've uh-huh. just dedicated $6 million to research on soil health and regenerative ag practices. So, uh, if these big companies can have an impact like that, uh, 34, 000, I think I would love to see 34,000 acres transition to organic with a focus on soil health in Iowa.
1: Yeah, now well, there, there has been quite a transition already, not just in Iowa, but, but nationwide, but we've certainly seen that here.
0: Right, you're right. But yeah, you yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There is, there's more interest in organic production. Yeah. amongst conventional farmers well, I, I think
1: the, I think the biggest driver of that is going to be demand, consumer demand is going to make more of a difference than anything, and and we're, and we're seeing more of that, so oh uh, yeah, yeah sure. but sure. at some point it'd be nice to level the playing field I mean, you know folks are always talking about well, we've got to have a fair you know balanced playing field, and right now that's so skewed I mean if you're growing you know the the, the major commodity crops on thousands of acres of land, you've got advantages over people growing food for direct marketing. And that's, just, that's just the reality, and, and that probably needs to change.
0: Yeah, I agree. Totally agree.
1: Hey, Ken, thanks for joining us. We've got to run to a break here. Ken Rosenborough, folks, we've been talking about regenerative agriculture. Uh, thanks again for calling in today, Ken.
0: Sure, happy to. All right,
1: when, when we come back, Target folks, here. we're going to talk about the uh, Office of Secretary of State. There are 50 of them in the U.S., and they're a lot more important than you think. Deirdre Jajir who's going to join us for that conversation when we come back from a break on the Fallon Forum. Black
3: magic has me in its spell That old black magic that you weave so well Those icy fingers up and down my spine The same old witchcraft when your eyes meet mine That same old tingle that I feel inside, and when that elevator starts its ride, then down and down I go, round and round I go, like a leaf that's caught in the tide. I should stay away, but what can I do? I hear your name, and I'm aflame. A flame with such a burning desire that only a kiss can put out the fire. For you're the lover I have waited for, you're the mate that fate had me created for and every time your lips meet mine darling down and down i go
1: round and round i go back to the fallon forum later we'll be talking about the swiss um we'll be talking about mcdonald's and i'll be talking about starlings and how they might be a great metaphor for the movement to address gun violence. But first, I want to welcome Deidre DeGere to the program. Uh, Deidre, welcome to the Fallon Forum. Welcome to our studio.
4: Thanks for having me. It's great to be here for the first time.
1: Yeah, well, uh, and maybe not the last time either. So uh-huh. Deidre is a candidate for Secretary of State in Iowa. I did also um, invite uh, the other guy running, uh, Jim Mauer. He refused to meet with me or talk. So <laughs> I've covered my bases in terms of trying to get uh, both you know, both candidates to discuss uh, why this office is important. Uh, I'll just point out, for people who don't really think about why Secretary of State is important, um, election laws make a huge difference, and what happens with elections uh, really matters. Mm -hmm. That's not the only thing that the uh, office addresses. I I do -hmm. want to talk about about election law specifically, but I know you've got a strong business background and business interests are very critical and central to the mission of the Secretary of State's office.
4: Of course. Um, And and I think it probably depends on which Secretary of State you're talking to, but you know, (laughs) anybody wanting to do business in our state has to go through that office. And right now, it's really just... um, uh, more of a, an opportunity for people to start their business. Whether you're an Apple, a mom-and-pop shop, or uh, you're working out of your home, you, you're supposed to register through that office first to do business in our state. And... Uh, I think, and it's pretty cheap. It's pretty well. It was. He like recently quadrupled bucks, right? the fees. Oh, really? He recently quadrupled the fees. Oh, wow! What is it cost Putting now? the burden of the um, expense that the Secretary of State needs to improve our systems, putting that burden oh, on wow. on okay. our business. So went up from twenty
1: bucks to eighty bucks.
4: Well, it's maybe it's more than quadrupled. So right now it's about a hundred forty, a hundred fifty bucks to file. Wow. Um, uh-huh. It was 20 bucks uh, not too long ago. Mm-hmm. And so hmm. I, I think that that office is well positioned to connect our business mm-hmm. owners to resources that exist statewide that are going to be able to help those business owners progress and grow. Yeah. Um, and that office is uh, one that is underutilized sure. as it relates to uh, truly being a resource for our business C- owners. C- it's not
1: just about registering the business. It's about also getting some guidance, correct? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah.
4: Exactly. And you know when you think about uh, USDA loan processes for our farmers and folks who are living in rural Iowa, targeted small business program for um, our women and minority Mm -hmm. business owners, these are resources that the state is investing and the federal government is investing dollars into, and we need to make sure that these business owners know about it. We also can't take it for granted that because they're starting their business, they know all the ins and outs of how they need to interact with our government to continue to stay in business. So when you're thinking about a restauranteer or someone who's in the catering industry, you know, how does that individual navigate going to the health department to getting the appropriate licenses that they need? What licenses do they need? And, you know, it it would be awesome for those business owners to just walk away with a toolkit and a checklist to say, okay, (laughs) this is what I need to do. And guess what? It doesn't cost extra money. It doesn't cost extra money. It's just really putting yourself in a position to care about those businesses in such a way that um, that will be at most advantageous for them as business owners and for the economy in which they're servicing.
1: And I believe that's the case across the country that the Secretary of State's office deals with not just elections but also with uh, issues of business registration.
4: Majority of the Secretary of States do deal yeah. with business registrations, yes. Okay. So,
1: two elections because that's a that's a pretty hot topic. Uh, mm-hmm. we've seen tremendous shifts in Voter uh, voting and election law across the country. Uh, uh, the most um, notorious is uh, gerrymandering,
4: mm-hmm.
1: which does not happen in Iowa, but it happens in a lot of states and mm-hmm. it happens really badly. Mm-hmm. Uh, you look at some of these districts and you think, "What did some kid draw that? Right. Uh, is that some kind of a crazy snake?" You know, more <laughs> EKG? They, yeah, <laughs> they twist, they whine, and they're all designed, of course you know isolate voters in blocks where you're likely to gain republican or democratic majorities although most cases the gerrymandering is done by republicans but there have been cases of democrats doing it too that's one example the uh uh voter id law is another example um uh
4: purging voter purging records. voters uh,
1: mm-hmm. not allowing felons to uh vote once they're done serving the ser- serving their sentence mm mm-hmm.
4: mhm yeah yeah you know There are a number of tactics that people utilize to carve certain populations out of the voter process. Mm. And I can't think of one that I am in agreement on, mainly in part due to the fact that I fundamentally don't believe we should carve people out of the voting process. All of our eligible voters should have an opportunity to um, to access their 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 right to vote. Now, I think
1: Iowa is one of the few states that do not allow, allow felons who have served their sentence and paid their restitution to automatically have. At one point,
4: we court. were right, <laughs> and,
1: and then and then Governor Branstetter came back in and he rescinded that right. Mm-hmm. And that's not something you have the power to do, but you can certainly speak no. out about it.
4: You know, I think I think that we have to think about folks who have committed crimes, committed felons, and what we really want out of those individuals when they come back into our neighborhoods. It's easier
1: for them to get their gun rights restored than to get their voting rights restored.
4: Well, regardless of that point, for me, it's like prison is supposed to be— a rehabilitation. It used it's to be called punitive. the penitentiary. Yes. Penance. Yes. Yeah. So the idea is that these folks are going to prison, serving out their sentence, and we want them to come back into our communities and and add value. We don't want them to commit crimes. We want them to contribute to the communities in which they live in. How do we expect someone to fully be committed to doing that if we don't allow them to exercise their most fundamental right? And that's the vote. Right. Um, that that to me is counterproductive. Yeah. We are singling them out in a way that we don't have to and we don't need to. In Some
1: countries you're required to vote. If you don't vote, you pay a fine. That is very true. What about that?
4: You know, I'm, I'm, <laughs> going I, too far? I think that's going a little bit too <laughs> far. What mainly in part due to the fact that we've, we haven't made the true investments and the true efforts to encourage voting. You know, our Secretary of State comes out during the fair and gets people registered to vote. Right. You know, we we can't charge someone for not voting when we haven't done due diligence and in inviting them to the party. But you, you would
1: support that you know, using the fairs, uh, the Iowa State fairs. Of one
4: course. Place. Okay. I mean, you know, that's when we get a great group of Iowans to- And a lot, to, and a lot of visitors, too. And a, and a lot of visitors. And I think that it's important for us, for the Secretary of State, to be visible there. Sure. But I think it's also just as important for our Secretary of State to be visible in in all of our 99 counties schools and schools schools included yeah. um whether it's high schools or it's colleges um technical schools you know we really have to meet people where they're at in a in a climate where people feel threatened by exercising their right yeah. to vote where people feel disengaged in the process. We have to do our due diligence via the Secretary of State's office to um, champion people's voices and, yeah. and include them in the process. We
1: have, there, there are voter ID laws all across the country. And one was just passed in Iowa recently. And in Polk County here in Des Moines, we just had an election where that voter ID law took effect. And it, it, it had an impact. There were people who... Came to the polls without their driver's license or without their their alternative ID, and they were not able to vote. Mm-hmm.
2: Uh,
1: what would you do? Would you would you rescind the current Secretary of States? Uh, efforts to um, to
4: require that voter ID? So the Secretary of State doesn't have the power to rescind. I know, I know, <laughs> I know. Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, it's, it's a legislative it, decision. Yeah, but. Exactly. And, you know, my notion around this, my my dad always taught me, rather than harp on a hurdle, figure out a way to get over it. So until we can get to the <laughs> point of rolling back some of those um, egregious barriers that our current Secretary of State has placed in, in the way of voters and, and the ballot box, we need to over-educate people on how the voting process has changed right and that means i do that now as a candidate right and i do it in office he's allocated only fifty thousand dollars to letting the entire state know that the voting process has changed that's ridiculous yeah. especially when he doesn't have the grassroots approach to this method and, and, and getting out the vote. Um, and so I, I think it's very important for people to know their rights. You know, this go round in 2018. We have a little bit of a loophole as it relates to the voter ID bill. Um, people or the, the poll workers will be required to ask for an ID. However, if the person does not have it, they are not required to show it. Oh, well, that, that
1: maybe some of the workers didn't get the message here in Des Moines because I think they were saying, hey, if you don't have your ID, you gotta go back to your. You're correct. You? They
4: didn't get the message uh-huh. because our Secretary oh, because, of State uh, yeah. did not do the due diligence right. in providing training to our auditors right. who would then train our poll workers. You're yeah. exactly right about that. And, and you know, I, I was listening to an interview the other day yesterday, I believe, and he said, you know, I think the process is going fine. How can the process go fine when we have evidence that people were turned away from the voting process, right. when we have evidence that people weren't able to cast a, an actual vote that day, but they had to use a, a provisional ballot. That's just it's ridiculous. Yeah. And I, I think it's it's unjustified that anybody going to exercise their right to vote yeah. is turned away in this climate.
1: But, you know, as you pointed out, though, some of these decisions are made by the legislature. Some are one, the one relevant to uh, felons having the right to vote restored is made by the governor. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, there, there are certain things you can do as the secretary of state uh, quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but some of these are going to require, you know, working with other elected officials to accomplish change. Mm-hmm. And I, mean, I assume that's not something you're afraid to, you know, get into.
4: Right. You know, in my work that I do, I am a convener. I like to bring groups of people together to accomplish a task, whether it's for the greater good or if it's for that specific sector of folks. And it's ever more important in this day and age to convene people who don't always think the same, Hmm. because that is how we obtain true progress, Hmm. getting buy in from several sides. And that's going to be important for this specific office. This is a partisan race. You know, we have got Democrats running, Republicans running. But the implications that it has are nonpartisan. And so regardless of the things that we disagree on, Republican, Democrat, Libertarian, no party, whatever, we've got to stand side by side and agree that we cannot infringe on people's right to vote. That's a no-no. We've right. come too far as a country to turn back the, the, the time on that one. Well, thank you for joining us, Deirdre. Thanks for having yeah. me.
1: And if Jim Mauer or Paul Pate or anyone else deciding to throw their hat in the ring should uh, should want to be on this program, they'd be very welcome as they well. They should
4: come. Thanks for coming.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, dear uh, dear dear folks, we've been talking with her about the uh, the office of Secretary of State and what it does, relevant not just to elections but to uh, businesses, and why it's important. Um, probably more important now than it, than it has been for mm-hmm. in years past. So again, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. All right, thanks to our host station here at Lorraine at twelve sixty a.m. and ninety six point five FM, and the stations across the country that rebroadcast this program. You can also hear it. As a podcast on the Fallon Forum website, that's fallonforum.com. And we're working toward uh, increasing the frequency of live streaming this program as well. All right, so um, for those on our community-owned stations, we'll come back and talk a little bit about Switzerland and McDonald's. Yeah, how about that? But first, you know, my favorite thing to do on Sunday is to walk. Now that should surprise no one who knows me, and I—I I know it's—it's it's been said that I have a walking addiction and that I need a twelve-step program. I actually think walking is darn good for you, and I really look really look forward to my ten to twenty-mile walk on Sundays. And um, I'm out in the woods yesterday, and uh, across the Raccoon River, I can hear what the sound. I, at first, I thought it might be uh, a place where the the ripples were congregating and making a bit of noise, and then I realized no, it's birds. And as I get closer, uh, this flock of of starlings begins to kind of move across the river. And they're, um, you know, I I have no idea how to count how many there were, but tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands, possibly a million. I'm going to put up a a photograph or two on my website and on Facebook, and maybe even a short video. I, I, I took some shots of these birds. And it is it is absolutely incredible I mean they literally cover the trees we have no leaves on our trees right now thanks to an extremely uh, late winter um, just, they won't let go but the um, the birds gave the effect of these leaves of these trees being in full foliage and then when they would um, break from the tree in this this huge cloud you could hear the the whoosh of the wings and you could see this vast cloud I mean it almost looks like a cloud of, of cloud, a dark cloud floating across the blue sky. It's, uh, it's amazing. And um, as often happens when I take long walks, I wax philosophical. I start thinking deeply about meaning. And I, you know, I, I saw these birds. And they're, I mean, harmless. I, I mean, I know bird lovers can't stand starlings. They're, they're invasive species. They were brought over as kind of a novelty in Central Park, Back in the 1800s, and they just took off and they've taken over. I understand. They're, 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 they, they threaten habitat uh, and food supply for native birds. And some of my bird-loving friends, and I'm a bird lover too, but my bird-loving friends call them winged winged bats. And I would think that as a tree-loving person, uh, if you were going to apply the winged bat reference to starlings, you would want to pl- apply the buck-tooth reference to beavers uh, because they're just as damaging to trees as starlings are to other bird habitat. But I digress, and I digress badly. The, um, <laughs> where I want to go with this is seeing these starlings. I mean, the only risk to me walking you know, by them is, is possibly getting a, a bit of a starling guano on my coat. That didn't happen. But I thought, you know, there are so many of you. There are so many, thousands and thousands. If you wanted to take me out, you could do it. You could come down here, and I would be hopeless, or helpless. I, I, there's nothing I could do to defend myself against, against thousands and thousands and thousands of starlings. They could peck me. I mean, it would be like a scene from The Birds, only smaller birds in this case, but I would be done with. <laughs> I'd be gone. Uh, they'd have me finished off in no time at all. There would be some carnage. They would lose some numbers, but I would be toast. Um, now, what I thought about was, how well-organized starlings are in their preferred activities of roosting in trees, eating, mating, and flying. I was glad they aren't organized to take out the occasional woodwalker, Um, (laughs) because they could do it. And I thought about the growing movement against gun violence. You know, for so long, I mean, human beings have been really good about organizing themselves. We organize ourselves in communities. Uh, We certainly organize ourselves in, in large groups when it comes to sporting events, um, you know, uh, millions of people can turn out for, uh, you know, for activities that, that don't have a lot of influence on history, but are fun. And that's cool. That's great. But what if, what if human beings, what if instead of a stadium full of 75,000 sports fans, what if those 75,000 people got organized in their community to do something about gun violence or about any of the other pressing issues facing our world? What if they decided to really get organized and with the same kind of passion and determination, you know, flock to a movement to do something about climate change? You know, we have... We, we're we really good at getting organized as a species, as good as starlings. <laughs> um, and, and you could argue... My native friends would argue that they were as invasive as starlings and have had just as negative an impact on the uh, on the local environment and an indigenous population. Um, but you know, we could we could use that metaphor of how powerful these birds can be. I mean, their, their presence in the woodlands alone is very powerful in terms of its impact on other species. But in my 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 uh, my hypothetical imagination about what they could do to me. If they decided to, it, it's pretty amazing. I mean, what if 75,000 people decided to s- descend on the U.S. Capitol building? I mean, you could overwhelm law enforcement. You could overwhelm anything and everything to do with that building. And again, I'm, I'm suggesting that this would be done, of course, vi- nonviolently. But if you had enough people mobilized to do something, uh, it could happen. Uh, what if every school in the country, or what if even 20% of the schools in the country, students decided... To walk out, not just for a symbolic hour or a day. What if they decided to walk out until Congress actually did something? What if they said, you know, we're not going to do this anymore. We're not going to go to school until it's safe and, and Congress has taken action. What if? Huh? I, I, you know, I, I think the only thing keeping us back from seeing really successful and significant change on this issue and other issues is organized people working together. And again, I think it's happening. I think we're starting to see more and more of that happening. It's, you know, It's been happening throughout the history of our country, of course. It escalated recently uh, after the election of President Trump, and it has escalated further, specifically on the gun violence issue after what happened at Parkland. And, you know, where that will go, I don't know. But I think the Starling presents a great metaphor for how we might mobilize together and focus on something that really, really matters. Guy who about love, Talk love about, about McDonald's. God. Yeah, you know I am. I'm going to McDonald's? Um, I, they they they're kind of the very symbol of everything that's wrong with food in my mind. Um, I know uh, McDonald's got uh, quite a, a lot of pushback years ago. A documentary called uh, "Fat um, Supersize Me." But um, I, you know, may, maybe I'll have to um, maybe I'll have to go to McDonald's once just to thank them for. What they're now doing. You know, back in January, McDonald's announced that it uh, was going to have all of its customer packaging or, or certified sources that have some element of recycling, recycled components in them. And um, that was good, a small step, but good. But now, just this week, just this past week, big announcement McDonald's plans to slash its greenhouse gas emissions by 36 percent by the year 2030 that's that's significant in a company as big as mcdonald's now again understand that mcdonald's each little restaurant is owned by some local person it's a franchise arrangement so but they can require these things of their franchisees and my immediate thought was so if you're going to start requiring your franchisee to do all these things isn't that going to cost them you know an extra money but they're saying mcdonald's is saying it won't cost them any money beyond what they would normally spend on the usual upgrades and in fact it will lower their energy costs my my comment to that is well why didn't why didn't they do it sooner (laughs) if it's going to save money and for that matter why isn't everyone doing it and that's a great question because once you're through some of the uh up up upfront costs for example of installing solar panels you're looking at saving a lot of money so i'm glad that mcdonald's is doing this and um You know, it's it's significant too. What they're doing will be the equivalent of taking 32 million cars off the highway for a year. That's that's a lot. That's a lot of vehicles. (laughs) That's a lot of vehicles. And um, of course, you know, they're they're looking at installing uh, LED lighting, uh, energy efficient uh, kitchen equipment. I mentioned earlier that they've already agreed to switch to environmentally friendly packaging. Uh, They're doing more with recycling. And um, the biggest challenge is that, quote, having farm animals graze. That caught my interest more than anything because most of the source material for a McDonald's burger is not a grazing animal anymore. It's a corn-fit animal. And, of course, being in Iowa, I'm supposed to love everything that happens with corn. But um, physiologically, a cow is not designed to eat corn, or at least that's not designed to be its its primary diet. They're grazing critters. And so when McDonald says, again, if this is an accurate story, if this is not a typo or an assumption, if this is true, if they're actually planning to, quote, source their animals, farm animals, very, you know, where they graze. And I guess by but when they say very where they graze, they mean rotational grazing. They mean not over grazing, which again happens a lot. Uh, that's pretty interesting to me. Because that's going to mean a whole shift in not just um, meat production, but in grain production. Because if, if McDonald's burgers are going to be made with grass-fed beef, you're going to see a lot less corn. Uh, I mean, or maybe, maybe more and more of the corn crop will go to ethanol or to, or to other purposes. But you'll see less of it going to feed animals, if that is indeed what they intend to do. Now of course, uh, when you think of McDonald's, yeah, you think of French fries, you think of uh, of Ronald, you think of um, lots of things, but you think of you think you think of the Big Mac, you think of bur- burgers. That's that's their focus is burgers, and um, you know, that's going to be a challenge. But if this is what they're really trying to do, you know, I I may break down and for the first time in my adult life, go into McDonald's and order a grass fed burger with. Uh, with ketchup, mustard, pickles, and uh, sesame seed bun, whatever the jingle is, I can't even remember now. But anyway, um, (laughs) this is pretty amazing. And uh, a couple, you know, one one other point here I'd like to make is that, um, you know, the analysis says that folks between the ages of 16 and 35, they're pretty much now assuming, you know, they'll look at all brands, and if they're comparable in price, they're going to go with the one that's, got a social conscience. They're going to go to the one that's green, that's friendly to the environment. And so, you know, for McDonald's, this isn't just about caring about the planet. It's a good marketing decision. And I expect that we're going to see more and more businesses follow suit. The summer wind came blowing in from across the sea. You know, as a young adult, there were two places in Europe I wanted to visit more than anywhere else, and that was Greece and Switzerland. Now, I've still not made it to Greece, and it took me a long time to get to Switzerland. I didn't get to Switzerland until I was almost forty, and I um, I, I was so impressed. I spent um, I spent about uh, let's see, four days in Zurich, and I was delighted to see that last last week that uh, U.S. News and World Report named Switzerland the world's best nation <laughs> um, for the second year in a row, and um. Three of uh, Switzerland's largest cities rank in the top ten places to live, and again Zurich is one of them. And the reasons cited here all resonate. I, I mean, I was, I was. They talk about um, the importance of public transportation, and I, uh, I, I remember um, staying staying with my hosts. We would, we walked. I don't know, a minute, two minutes at the most, to a street where we. Uh, we waited for less than five minutes. The buses were running all the time. We hopped on a bus and went down to a farmer's market, um, maybe a 10 minute ride, 15 minute ride, loaded up, and took the bus back again. I mean, very little, there were very, very little, very short distances to walk, which is good because we had a lot of vegetables and stuff we bought. Um, also, one thing that wasn't mentioned in the, in the uh, analysis that I saw, I remember being able to step out the door of my, my friend's apartment in. The heart of Zurich. And within no time at all, I was able to walk out into the countryside. There were farms, there were mountains. Uh, you know, and, and you can't do that if you've got a sprawling community that goes on for 10, 20 miles or more, you know. So, what they've got going for them in Switzerland is something that we might want to consider, you know, modeling here in the US. And yeah, they got mountains in some parts of the country, Iowa, for example. We can't, we can't, uh, Come up with mountains. What we do have instead of mountains are beautiful cumulus clouds in the summertime, which I think are just as beautiful as a mountain. But we do have what we could do is be better organized. I mean, everything works on works on schedule in Switzerland. Trains run on time. Uh, we have people are paid better wages. The average salary runs from 100 grand to 108 thousand a year. That's amazing, and they have low income tax rates. You know, they have a great healthcare system. Um, they spend a high percentage of uh, their GDP on education, on research, and infrastructure. Of course, when you're spending lots of your, uh, your, um, your tax revenue on the military and on, uh, on the corporate giveaways, you're not going to have money for those things. So we've got a long ways to go in the U.S., but hey, let's take a page from the Swiss and um, maybe try to let that influence some of our policymaking decisions going forward.
3: Fare thee well, me. I got a roam And any place I hang my hat is home Sweetening water, cherry wine Thank you kindly suits me just fine Kansas City